Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Welcome, everyone, as always, to the podcast. I'm here. I'm Father Timothy Danaher, speaking with Fathers Luke Hoyt and Alan Piper, we are speaking today of a 2005 documentary, our first documentary. Congratulations to us or it. I don't know how it goes. It is a German film from 2005 by Philip Groening called Die Grasse Stille, which is Into Great Silence. It's a documentary on possibly the most, one of the most silent communities of human beings out there on the planet, the Carthusians. So as a tribute... To integrate silence, I thought we'd spend a good segment of this podcast in silence. You couldn't. You 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 didn't last ten seconds. You started laughing. I didn't. I didn't say anything though. <laughs> I I just I was testing you both because we're. I, I want to talk about similarities and dissimilarities between religious because I think as a religious, you guys would both agree. You make a comparison, right? I, I'll begin, though, with with commentary, with talking. It is according to the rule of you know, the rule that Bruno, Saint Bruno, made up the Carthusians that you can speak when necessary. So it's not that there's this uh, strict rule. You can speak when necessary. We have to speak. We're on a podcast. We're on air. Let's do it. I want to know your impressions first. My impression uh, to give a brief. Double history. I first watched this film when I was actually in a Carthusian monastery. Now, my study abroad program with Franciscan University of Steubenville, they took an old, abandoned uh, monastery and now made it into a campus abroad. So I was actually in a Kartausa in, in Gaming, Austria, watching a movie on the Carthusians just across the Alps in France. And it was neat that that was the first setting. One of our fellow priests in the Dominicans, Father Sebastian White, who's with Magnificat, he was the one who, who was my resident director, and he hosted this movie-watching night. And again, it's two hours and 40 minutes. It's a somewhat silent, quiet, meditative, mature film. I'm starting to convert to Christ more in college, but I don't know if I was ready for this. So I watched probably 20 minutes of it. And then I left. And then I heard later on that there was sledding in the end, that the monks, that they go sledding. And I thought, oh, gosh, I should have stayed. That, that would have been it. And also that they speak. There is that interview at the end. Um, that was my first approach. I watched it again this past month with our older friar here in Philadelphia, Father Giles. And he had a great, I think we watched it in, because it's two hours and 40 minutes, we watched it in five segments because Father Giles enjoyed it, and he would comment on it. And I would – I mean, I actually was eating chips during our first viewing, and, and I realized in the first five minutes, i got to finish these chips to, <laughs> because this is inappropriate. And he was – so it, was, there was, it wasn't totally silent. There was some commentary, and he actually stood up midway th- – you know, half an hour into it. He goes, he goes, maybe we'll resume this another time. <laughs> We would like to hear you on this another time. So it's funny. We didn't pull the full 240. We watched it in five 
half an hour segments <laughs> and it i did love it i was enchanted by it i found it highly meditative i'll go into the reasons why but there's my i finally accomplished it it's done check the box anybody else yeah, I saw I it in the theater when it first came out when I was in college, I guess. It was 2005 or after college. It um, was 2005 in theaters, right? Yeah, so I, I went and the theater was quite empty. And I sat sort of middle back. And there were some people sitting in the front. I think they stayed the whole time. But they also had popcorn and everything, which is it's louder in that kind of a film. <laughs> yeah, the, the silence... I mean, there's something about it being a movie about silence where it's it's engrossing. You can almost feel the silence. You can almost or, hear it. Isn't there almost like a loudness yeah, to the yeah, silence? There's something to it like that where it takes you in and it feels more substantial. I think I also saw it. Uh, well, wait, no, no, I did not see it in college. I But I remember catching wind of it when I was in college. And uh, the reason why I remember it very well, though, even um, just simply noticing it in, when I was an undergrad uh, up in Ann Arbor is that there were these two really uh, great independent art house movie cinemas there in downtown Ann Arbor. And uh, they were always showing these various foreign films and some of them were sort of edgy films and uh, yeah, just your typical art house array. And uh, it was just so funny, kind of remarkable and beautiful to, to see in that array of general uh, new art house films, most of which are not terribly religious, at least explicitly so, to see in that mix this this uh, basically like a two and a half hour retreat on offer where you get to go just kind of check into a Carthusian monastery for two and a half hours there in this in this movie house on this undergraduate secular campus. Um, so that was just a neat, a neat thing to notice. I never, I think a few years later, I, I also saw 20 minutes of it and then um, just said that I would come back to it at another time. Um, and then I did not come back to it until just the, this past week. And uh, I also enjoyed it very much. Um, yeah, what you both said about silence, it reminds me of, I remember one person talking to me about what about, about their attempts to unplug in their life um, and just to try to have more silence and to stop listening to music all the time to um, just seek silence. And one thing that they said is they said, you know what you notice is that the silence is not silent. And I was really struck by that. And, and um, that's definitely the case for this film. The silence is not silent at all. Um, not only do you begin to notice lots and lots of other sounds that you would usually not notice, um, but the silence itself has a kind of um, almost speaking quality to it. I think we notice that, too, in our own religious life. You know, you're you're sitting at table for dinner, for instance, and we like many other religious communities, will at time have readings during meals. So you're eating the meal. Sometimes that meal's in silence as a community. Sometimes there's a reading. But either way, you're noticing the birds. You hear birds more. You notice how your food tastes more. I mean, I this sounds ridiculous and pseudo-monastic, but I remember eating this piece of bread and just like <laughs> taste. I had always just skipped over bread in my life, and then I, I felt like I was tasting bread for the first time because there wasn't other activity going on. One thing I want to mention, too, so there are comparisons we can make between Dominicans, for instance, and Carthusians. So I think there are similarities I'd like to go into, but one great difference, for starters, is that Groening himself, who is a German filmmaker, kind of an arthouse filmmaker, very edgy in his other films. I just looked at the titles and descriptions. I didn't watch them. It was, it was way back. So this film was actually 
premiered in 2005. It was 1984 when he wrote as a young filmmaker to the Grand Chartreuse, St. Bruno's main motherhouse, the Charter House in the French Alps. And he wrote them a letter saying, can I come and film your life? And they wrote him a letter back 16 years later, which is just astounding. It is astounding. That you would, everyone would assume that's a no. And 16 years later, they wrote him back and said, yes, you may yeah. come. <laughs> no, for us, if, if we don't get an email response in 16 days, it's like, oh, well, I guess that's a no. <laughs> this was 16 years, and, and it was a yes. <laughs> right. And it's kind of heroic that he went for it after all those many years, and he lived for six months straight. And he didn't just film and was lazy. He lived their rhythm. So they get up. Um, in the middle of the night. So they never get more than four hours of sleep. They have kind of two blocks of four hours. And he said they get in the middle of the night for midnight office and more prayers and chant. He said there's this sort of uh, exhaustion that they never, one of their penances is never getting a full night's sleep. And yet with that exhaustion, he says, your mind is just clear as, as, as tired as he was and and estranged by this whole rhythm of life, he was also felt like he was thinking at his most clear those six months. It wasn't difficult, so to speak, because of that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You could he gave this you know uh, five six page interview online, but it is it is something to, to realize too that I think before we just make comparisons, this is not necessarily somebody capturing perfectly what is Carthusian life. It's a visitor with a camera to the Carthusians. So you get the environment. What the camera can't capture is, I mean, the daily prayers going through their heads. I mean, you're filming a silent monk. It's not silent in his head, okay? He's thinking, he's praying. There's a lot more Christ in his head than on the walls, the white walls, you know, which are plain and austere. So I always I felt there were limits to the film in that it was sort of like making a visit, but without the prayer life, which is actually why they're there at all. They do show their chant, but it's almost sort of a cultural look and an environmental feel rather than sort of the Carthusian life itself, which is seeking Christ. You get that a little bit when the monk at the very end is interviewed and he talks about death and how he's not afraid of death and death is a short passage and it's something to be courted like a marriage. Um, but without that little spoken segment at the end it's so i feel like there were limits to the silence it doesn't say everything that's going on mm-hmm. <clears throat> which, which may of course be one of the potential strong suits i mean i it does sort of just simply invite the viewer into what the silence could bring draw them to um without without simply naming it um so it may be particularly for a a audience that's not used to Carthusians, to maybe maybe to Christianity in general, um, that that might be one of the ways in which it's able to invite someone to Christ. I, I, I wonder, um, since it's not being explicit in it. But um, regarding the um, experience of, of the silence, again, it's I was noticing that there is the one moment where they do speak to each other during the, their little their little time of um, camaraderie, and that's exactly halfway through the film. Like if you, when I noticed that when you know when they were start, they suddenly start talking, and, and it and it takes you by surprise. You're like, oh my goodness, they're all chatting it up with each other. And uh, I remember just glancing down at the little uh, time measuring thing on you know on my YouTube channel, whatever. And uh, it was exactly halfway through the film, like down to the minute. I can't help but think that that was a very intentional choice. And what it spoke to me of is that it, it speaks of it, or it's it's um, a way of articulating how. The silence is indeed 
enfolding what? Well, not nothingness, not just a vacuum, but um, ultimately speaking. Um, and of course, everyone who goes into the silence in a Carthusian monastery, I mean, like you were saying, Father Timmy, they're doing that to encounter Christ. And, and who is Christ? He is the word, right? And so um, it, it was just an occasion for me to realize that, yeah, that's, that's true. That the, the reason why we, any of us, strive to cultivate silence in our life is so that we cannot simply declutter our life, but so that we can hear the word that is being spoken. But it also makes you realize that when they speak, that they're human beings. You know, I mean, I'm not saying this in a cheap way, but when they start to speak, you're like, oh, they're just guys. I mean, they're like joking around, messing around. And they have that, they take that long walk every Monday, every week That's to right. speak. And, and then they go sledding or even sort of skiing almost on their feet. Mm -hmm. And they're just yelling, you know, guys are what they call a case of the yips, you know, <laughs> that slang these days, just like hollering down the mountain. And you realize... Okay, because so, you can tend to think monk is almost your nature changes. Like, well, you know. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, that's refreshing. But I, I would say this, too, is that just in terms of his shaping of the film, there's certainly clear shaping. It's not just simply chronological. He does, he was only there for six months, but then he, he, he takes scenes and tries to make it seem like a year because it begins in winter, then you have the thaw into spring, summer, and summer work, and then it ends again in winter to give you this impression of here's a year. So he's mm -hmm. clearly he's shaping it, you know, purposefully. Yeah, speaking of the measuring of the film, so you've got the seasons, you've got the weeks divided by those, those times of camaraderie. But then you also have the bells. The bells divide up the days. I think that was one of the things that made you or kept you aware of the fact that this is not just a kind of quiet vacation spot. It's, uh, it has a vertical dimension and it has a penitential dimension. And so, you know, you have these wonderful scenes which are w what we would call the appreciation of nature, you have the blue monks especially going out and dealing with cattle and, and various landscape things. And, and that's kind of beautiful in itself. It's almost like a gardening show. But, you know, these things are bound by prayer, and they're supposed to lead to prayer. And I, I think that there was a, there's a kind of an analogy in the film itself with the usage of the sayings of Christ and Christian sayings, biblical quotes, you know, there's the black screen and the white text. And I feel like those are, are kind of analogous to the bells and, and, and the way that the bells break up the day of the monks and call them to prayer. The sayings, these words, these very few words, but, but incredibly pregnant, tell the viewer how they should look at all of the other images, how they should see mm -hmm. even the, the most neutral scene, like somebody playing with cats or even just a shot of, of water, all of these things should be understood in the light of, of the teachings of Christ. Mm. That's kind of a sacramental thing. You know, we, we talk about how there are rituals and there are elements in, in the sacraments. There's oil and there's, there's bread and there's bowing. And in a sense, these are all universal things in the liturgy. But when you overlay the sayings of Christ, then you give them a whole different, a very specific meaning. And some of those quotes, I'm just trying to remember one of them, unless you what, leave everything and follow me, you cannot inherit eternal life. Another one was Jeremiah, you have seduced me, O Lord, and I have let myself be seduced. What were some of the other ones? Um, 
I think that one was there four times. Right. I'm just impressed you guys saw the quotes at all because I was just like, oh, they're speaking in German and, and giving us a... Or no, they're speaking in French and giving us German <laughs> subtitles. I was like, well, I have no idea what they're saying, whatever. <laughs> because that's a trouble of access. Unless you buy a physical DVD, you have to watch this on YouTube, a foreign language version. Yeah. It's not available for streaming. Because one but, was, I'll, I'll give you a, um, a heart of flesh. And it replace I'll your heart of your stone. Sto- your stony hearts, yeah. Of course, another scriptural part is the um, when they're chanting, you have the camera giving you a close-up of the words of the Daniel canticle, which is saying, you know, ice and snow, bless the Lord, fire and wind, bless the Lord, etc. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, seeing the words of that canticle, thinking of the meaning of that canticle in this context where you, you very much have the sense that, wow, they're, they're all of the pastoral world around them the world of um the agrarian slash mountainous world around them they are really are drawing it into their own life in a sense and taking it up into that act of praise you're constantly sensing that that beautiful interpenetration of their natural work their artificial work and the, the, the yeah the natural world around them and it raises a comparison, one of many, which is that we sing the same canticle of Daniel every Sunday. That's in our office prayer. We chant that. But I feel more at a distance from that. I mean, they're living in the mountains in nature. Exactly, exactly. I'm feeling like I'm imagining nature, whereas they're actually living in it when they're pra- praising uh, the Lord. Well, I'm um, always living in it, Father Timothy, <laughs> personally. <laughs> but no. Um, speaking of, of nature, you remember those close-ups of, uh, of the grass? I love the part where they're, they're, where they're chanting and we have the close-ups of the, of the grass. And what it immediately reminded me of is, is um, just how... Like whenever I'm walking through the woods, I often find myself reflecting that, or I often find myself feeling like I'm encountering like a, a, a different dimension of time or something. I mean, when you're just surrounded by trees that just grow at their own very slow pace by animals that, 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 that are just very quiet and still oftentimes um, at mosses that are growing at their own very small pace. You you feel like you're you're encountering these creatures that are just experiencing time on a much slower dimension than than, than you or I are, and uh, similarly, you know, watching the, the the Carthusians here, you begin to have that sense that wow, they are perhaps beginning to enter into that a slower dimension of time, um, and and yeah, it's there's and there which means that there's therefore this kind of consonance begins to kind of sprout up, no pun intended, between their life and then the, the life of nature um, around them, the grasses, the trees, the mountains. Um, I, I do think we can at least, I, I have a small list drawn up of comparisons. I do think that entering religious life of any sort is a change of pace of life. I mean, we've experienced that as well, especially in the Vishit, especially in our student years. Now, then you change a radical change of pace when you have to get into active ministry. It's constant adjustment. I do wonder, you know, is this movie more easily felt by religious rather than laity? And not to make a comparison, people have taken retreats. But there is something about the rhythms of religious life, which I'm surprised how universal they felt. I felt a lot of similarity to the Carthusians. I'm not saying that on air to seem prayerful. I felt so much similarity to these men. I mean, there's just something about religious life as such. A A few things off the top of my head that I had written down, even though there are many, there is a change of sense of time slowing down. There's also a sense of cloister. I mean, when we were in the novitiate and really didn't see our families 
much for a year. We couldn't travel for a year. There's a sense of you're in one place. Like for them, it's in the Alps at their monastery, and you stay there, and life goes on without you in the outside world, and you're okay with that. There's a sort of peace that, well, I'm here, you know. And but there's this comparison that happens in cloister. Um, there are all the chores. I mean, you have all the different brothers assigned to different chores for the house. It requires not just individual silence, but a lot of organization in a monastery. And I feel like we've all known that as well. We still live in the place where everyone has an assigned chore and role, etc. Among those chores, I mean, very specific things. You know, I was looking at them cutting each other's hair. I mean, <laughs> any any religious brother's going to be thinking, yep, we all cut each other's hair too. We're not very good at it, but we just, you know, go for it. Taking care of the older friars, that was like, that was more personal than we would ever, but when they put that oil, that salve on the older friar on his dry skin, that was really amazing. And then how they have the many shots of all the different brothers' faces. And you think one of the first things we do when we enter is they take your photo and all of a sudden there are your faces. I mean, we don't stare in that way. That was sort of artistic, him putting the camera at their silent faces. But it does give you this sense, which I think is universal to all religious, of who are these other guys? Like, where did they come from? Why are they interested in this? I think every religious doesn't meet your fellow brothers and say, we're, we're the same. You, you look at the others and you think... Um, who are these guys? Um, so I, I do think they're great, like a list of similarities. But then I also love to see, and again, brief list, I love to see some of the differences I was noting. You know, for instance, that there's this focus on every, a few shots of gravestones. And their cloister is built specifically so their cemetery of friars to remember your death is in the middle of their cloister. Ours is just a flower garden with a Mary statue. So there's a sense of the dead, which is a little more prominent. There are different customs. I mean, I, I was reading more about this, but they, when the Angelus bell is rung, they pause and all kneel wherever they're working for the Angelus. Um, when, when they, they're much more structured than we are. I was reading about this more, how they have a few shots of the monks lying face first on the ground, prostrate in their rooms. And that's actually, even w- as, as, as silent and as a retreat as much as their lives be, it's highly structured, much more than us, where they, the, the director was saying how... There's almost no free time. You do have an afternoon free time for chores, but even when you go to office in the chapel, then you come back from office, and then you have to have prescribed prayers kneeling for 10 minutes. And then the one when they lay face first, I'd never heard this, they actually lay face first for about 15 minutes, offering their life for the world, which is amazing. But again, we don't walk back to our rooms and have another hour of prescribed prayers. So I I had never thought that... Yes, they're more silent, but that doesn't mean more independent. They're actually probably more heavily structured than any of us. And, I mean, they have everything else. You have the list goes on with separate meals. They're eating except for the Sunday meal. They have all their meals alone in their room. There's a sense of they're different from other Benedictines in that sense. We're more based on the Benedictines. They're definitely a new model of sort of independent each man to his own small house where he does a lot more prayers, meals, etc. So it's just interesting to see... The, the Carthusians are unique in their sort of independent monasticism, highly structured. Um, but at the same time, religious are religious. I think religious feel that when they watch this film. I did. Mm-hmm. The, I, I did this time, especially compared to when I was a college student. Night and day difference. Sure. No, they. Um, I remember visiting a Benedictine monastery one time, and it was specifically that kind of regimented schedule, which I found most challenging. Um, and I was doing that as, as a, as a layperson. Um I wonder what it would be like for me to to experience that again. But but no, there there, there was definitely a lot of 
a lot of uh, senses of, of similarity amidst all the differences between um, the Carthusians and us, us as Dominicans. One of the biggest differences, which is more sort of theoretical or something, um, is just that they're, they're all about silence and we're all about talking. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we're the order of preachers. And so um, if silence is a um, is sort of their road to holiness, for us, um, it's the speaking that is our, our road to holiness. But just just to go back real quick about the faces, my first thought was, wow, this was a, a total failure um, part of the film. Like this, just this is just awkward for everybody. Um, why did they do this? Um, but then, as I kept on, you know, they keep on coming back. Uh, but and as I began to reflect on it more, I began to think, I don't know, maybe this is part of the key to the whole the whole thing, which is that, you know, it's like, okay, why is it awkward for me to stare at this? silent face that's staring at the camera maybe the whole maybe that kind of diagnoses our problem that we are uncomfortable with the si- with silence you know we want we want to always fill silence um and interpersonal silence with speaking um and uh maybe as as a carthusian you you you're you're striving to fix yourself of that need to fill um, the apparent awkwardness of silence and just to learn to accept it, which uh, I guess we're invited to accept also as the viewers. Now, the funny thing is I had asked Father Allen last week, who had seen this years back, I said, do you even remember this film? He said, yeah, there's that scene where they all have their faces lined up. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) No, it's very memorable. That was a a very memorable part for me. So I liked it. I, I I didn't feel too much awkwardness, but it did connect for me with the question of whether this film is invasive. I'm sure that one of the reasons it took 16 years for them to respond is that this is so out of the ordinary. They're fairly secluded, and part of monastic life is being closed to the world. And so you're basically letting the whole world in to not only like the inside of your monastery, but the inside of your cell. I, I, when I first, or when I was remembering it, I couldn't remember how it was filmed. I I guess I had assumed it was just a bunch of fixed mounted cameras here and there in the monastery, but it's actually this guy standing in the room with, with these people praying. So they're, they're sitting there praying at length and he's just in there filming them. And it seems and so, it seems almost unpredictable. Like of all the monasteries in the world that would never let itself be filmed, it would be the Grand Chartreuse. And yeah, yet, yeah. So I was thinking about that a little bit, and, and maybe the the abbot thought, okay, this is the era of the new evangelization. You know, maybe we should open wide the doors to Christ in this sense. But also, there are these few times where the monks are doing something, and all of a sudden they look at the camera or they look at the cameraman. Yeah. And, and, and it, it really gives you a sense of what they're thinking because you feel like you're just a fly on the wall, usually when you're watching a documentary or whatever. They know you're there. And so I, I wonder if it doesn't actually betray a great confidence or a great self-possession where you just say, you know, I can actually close my eyes and go into a deep prayerful mode while you're doing whatever you're doing over there because, you know, it just doesn't bother me. Whereas, you know, most of us, if someone said, hey, can I just film you for an hour while you're praying? That would be weird. But maybe they just, they were okay with that. I think it's an open question for me is that, yeah, maybe it would have even been better if people like the Grand Chartreuse would just stay forever in secret. And yet I also feel... 
I feel like compared to almost any film that I've seen, especially documentaries, there's this sense of privilege and honor to be like, wait, we can really visit there. You know, we could we could really have an inside look. And I do think there's a sacredness to it all that you're going to a sacred place and it comes off that way and they were able to maintain that. So I'm I'm really grateful it was made. I mean, it hasn't been blown out of proportion. People have mostly ignored it since it had its first splash. Um, but I I mean, the one thing they didn't show the secret of these are the, this is my small disappointment. They didn't go into their making of the liqueur. They make chartreuse. Right, that's right? the thing they're most they're most known for. Most known yeah. for, and they apparently uh, they they did film that, but they just didn't include it. We'll have to go and dig the internet deeper to try and find. I I know too that the director said there were a couple monks who refused to be filmed. They were given the freedom individually to opt out, and so he would have to put little notes in their boxes saying, "I'm going to be filming today." Um, choir and mm. so they would sit kind of back and they wouldn't come to certain activities so there were those that avoided the camera it mm. wasn't unanimous um, there did I, it did seem to at least one or two of the monks it seemed almost suspicious of it i mean the way they would look at the camera <laughs> and yet one of <laughs> them kind of like are you are you done yet with this that's right. one towards the end uh looked up after praying and he forgot the camera was there and it's the first smile you get he kind of smiles like oh you're here okay <laughs> it's just this guy hanging around i also had wished too they filmed i wish they had filmed more of mass i guess they don't really preach at mass and mass is supposed to be non-evangelical it's just simply a community Worship, but they really they show benediction. But it's it's sort of funny of, of all the choices that mass, whatever kind of Catholic you are, it is still this centerpiece. And that they did of the procession, so that was beautiful. I as think well. there was the distribution of communion at one point. Yeah, we saw them passing around this like <laughs> from a <laughs> distance enormous vat for a chalice or something. I was like, what and, is going on? And here? they all went up to the sanctuary in a semicircle, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Right. You get a I thought that was kind of nice that they, I don't know, the camera gave the liturgy some space like that. Well, final thoughts, anybody, before we switch quickly from the sacred to the secular? Just, I'm not sure if I'll be able to articulate this very well, but, um, I can't help watching these movies reflecting on other movies that we've been watching in our discussions. And for, for whatever reason, one of the ones that was occurring to me to make comparisons to was Stanley Kubrick's 2001. And uh, the, the reason for that connection is this, which is that watching 2001, I was very struck by how it seems to have this desire. And I think I might have spoken about this in, our, in that discussion, but just how there seems to be this very fundamental underlying desire to transcend our humanity and hence the hence the huge emphasis on sort of artificial plastic surfaces and wanting to kind of transcend not only our humanity but time and space through technology and through evolution through progress that seems to be the underlying desire that 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 movie kind of gives voice to and i was just struck by how this movie is at the is like the polar opposite of that where it's 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 also trying to articulate a transcendence of time and space a transcendence of the material world and yet the way that it's doing that is the total opposite of 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 stanley kubrick's sort of science fiction perspective which is that what well it's it's a catholic perspective which is namely that the way that we transcend the material the way that we transcend time and space is by is through the material and through time and space and so how neat that in a sense these these men they 
root themselves in time and space more than any of us do. They live a regimented life in time. They are rooted to one space in, on the whole globe. And their lives are very bound to matter as take, their lives are taken up with these very menial tasks. And yet it's precisely through all that that they achieve the, the deepest transcendence a lot deeper than, than anything that Stanley Kubrick's able to, to portray. Yeah, that's a really good point, Father Luke. You know, you had the wonderful scenes of the wood cutting, the beautiful fruit, the food that they eat, um, even the books, the tangibility of all these things mm -hmm. really comes through. Yeah, one of the, the sayings that appears in white text on a, a black screen is something to the effect of their words put into the mouth of Jesus. They're not from the scriptures, but, they're, but they express Catholic doctrine. And uh, Jesus says... I've taken on your humanity. Won't you come and receive from me my divinity? Hmm. It's talking about the purpose of the incarnation, which is the divinization of human beings. And this little saying is shown right after the big haircut scene, hmm. which is a very you know bodily and human mm -hmm. and non-angelic activity. But... With but, the, uh, with the buzzing, about, the buzzing of the clippers, even yeah, breaking and there's silence. A, there's, a, there's a tenderness to the room and to the scene, and but it's also overlaying with this silence and with this grace. There, I think there's even there's even a prayer to you where a, a monk says a prayer before he leaves the barbershop. <laughs> you know, so so you really see the the meeting of the human and the divine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, you know, Jesus would have gotten his hair cut. That's something I've never really <laughs> thought about before. <laughs> That's right. Here's my last my last thought. Jesus would have also loved the Alps. To spend two and a half hours in the Alps. I mean there are mountains all over the world, but God knew what he was doing when he made the Alps. I'm so glad I just feel I'm glad they said yes and we got to actually see within the Grand Chartreuse and just spend time in the Alps because if you had to spend your time, your life in one cloistered place it's a great choice. Other Carthusians that don't join that monastery, what are you thinking? <laughs> go to the Charter House. Go to the Alps. You won't be disappointed. I mean, oh, majestic. They are amazing. So next time, we are going to switch. Father Luke, drum roll. You can um, present this classic right. coming down so, the line. Yeah, having just spent uh, two and a half hours in the Grand Chartreuse, it was the clear what the next step should be, which was to go to... Casablanca. There it is. Clear, so, clearly the next step. What more needs to be said? <laughs> Casablanca. We're going to go to North Africa. Not too far from France, by the way. Not too far. Not too far. But in a gin joint. It's a little bit of a different <laughs> setting. And we will end this podcast in great silence. See you next time. <laughs>